Hiring? With Indeed, your search is over. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode of the Platinum Sombrero Podcast is brought to you by Giancarlo Stanton's Air Conditioning Company. Is your old AC unit on the fritz? Are you worried about sweating through another brutal summer? Call your friends at Giancarlo Stanton's Air Conditioning Company, where we're guaranteed to keep you ice cold all summer long. Mr. Stanton is a certified supplier of massive wind gusts generated from the mightiest swings and misses in the entire American League. He's like your own personal turbine. All air, no heat. That's Giancarlo. Patent pending. plus on their feet. Nobody's left to beat the traffic tonight, I guarantee you. Mark gets the sign. The wind and the pitch. Here it is. Long fly ball, deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! 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 Now get ready, this is the Platinum Sombrero Podcast with your hosts, Dylan Short and Adam Doc Herbert. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Platinum Sombrero. Dylan here, joined, as always, by my faithful partner in crime, Doc. How are you today, sir? Dylan, how are you doing today? Are you having a, uh, are you having a fantastic Wednesday? You know, fair to middling. Woke up a little bit late this morning, but it also meant I gained an extra hour of sleep, so can't, can't complain too much there. But it oh, is a pretty good Wednesday because I get to join you because we get to talk about the Braves and we have another awesome guest joining us today. It is the co-host of the Chopcast podcast, Corey McCartney. Corey, how are you today, sir? Hey, great. How you guys doing? Marvelous. <laughs> Can't complain, especially when the Braves, I wake up in May and the Braves are still in first place. Yeah, I thought you guys would be arguing this Laurel Yanni thing that's taken the taking the world by storm. We had uh, Kelsey Winger just came out of the Braves clubhouse. We had her in there asking a bunch of the guys what they heard. So it's, uh, I don't know, man, this thing's getting pretty ridiculous. It's taking everybody by storm. What are we talking about? So you guys don't know the Laurel and Yanni thing. I am no. I'm, I'm breaking news to you guys on your own show. Well, I this just the, in breaking I, news I know of it, but I, I don't know how it came, how it came about. I, I heard Laurel loud and clear. See, I, yeah, I, I'm with you. And, Sam Freeman apparently heard heard Yanni and, and people the other guys in the clubhouse from ballistics. So, um, if if you if you love the Sam Freeman, now you may question your love for Sam Freeman. 
<laughs> this is the 2018 version of is the the dress blue or is it gold? And that and that took hold in uh, what was that? That was spring training. What year was that? Because I remember Freddie Freeman walking around the clubhouse in spring training, showing everybody, trying to make sure everybody saw what he saw. But yeah, we've uh, we've been down this path before. Oh no! This is the easiest way to break up your first place chemistry. <laughs> You get the well, locker room divided. Jose Bautista, apparently. Uh, that was my tongue-in-cheek, Doc. Thank you for ruining the subtlety. <laughs> but I digress. So I wish it was a little bit happier tidings to, to, start, to, to start the show off with, but since we've got Corey on with us, why don't we go ahead and address the largest bugaboo, um, which was the horrendous, god-awful worst excuse for instant replay I've ever seen in my life in my completely unbiased opinion. Are you, are you, are you, are you going to give me a breakdown of it? Wait, wait, so what do you guys, I'm just going to lay this out there. What do you guys think MLB should do to fix this situation? Because I have my own ideas, but I'm always kind of interested to hear what other people think the solution is to this whole debacle. Well, first off, I don't think they should have umpires being the ones to, to judge the replays. I think it needs to be a blind, safer out call. They don't need to know what the umpire called originally they need to make yeah, a call um and umpires need to be held to a standard so if for example you are cb buckner and everyone sees that you're horrible at your job or angel hernandez and everyone knows that you're horrible at your job and you blow calls consistently you should not receive as many games as you do i think that's an easy way to up performance i would completely agree with you i mean you know you know number of ways though they are held that you know they're certainly rated on you know on how they call the game the amount of calls they get wrong and right if you get a call sent into new york and it gets flipped it gets a knock against you i think that might be the bigger issue what you said is the fact that they know what the call is right they know who's working the game they know what the call is so and you don't want to paint these conspiracy theories here but you do wonder if they're less apt to rule against somebody knowing that they're going to impact their potential to call an all-star game to call a postseason game because they're going against their calling. That might be, to me, the bigger issue is the fact that they know what it is going in. If it was blind, I mean, I know Lane Adams talked about this back when Ender was inexplicably called out trying to steal home. That that might be the bigger problem is just that they're aware of the outcome before they get the play. And I think more often than not, because of that, they seem more apt to just you know not overturn it so they, they ultimately don't end up hurting one of their own. And Dylan and I were kind of talking about this before before the show started. With there's been a, a lot of talk about pace of play, right? So yeah. if you're going to have instant replay in place, which is already going to wind up adding an extra two, three, however long, a couple minutes at a time, then you've got to make sure that you are absolutely nailing every single call because if it's done in the spirit of getting it right then that's a well-spent two or three or four minutes. But if it's still going to wind up just being, you know, like Dylan alluded to the NFL catch rule, what is a catch or what is, what is clear and convincing evidence, then it's just kind of a waste of time. So I will, I will definitely agree that it needs to be, it needs to be a blind call, a fresh set of eyes, just basically re-reviewing the, the play from all the different angles. And if you look at some of the Korean technology where they've got the four dimensional, it's, it looks like the Matrix when they do stuff in replay. So, I mean, they need better looks at what they're looking at. Would you like me to paint the ultimate conspiracy theory here? Rob Manfred is fine with us having these long delays because ultimately, if that happens and people get fed up with it enough, 
he's going to get his way and we're going to have everything be technology driven and we may not even need umpires anymore. And then you get the pace of play he wants because people will be so fed up. Well, there's no going backwards for instant replay. You're only going forwards. And ultimately the players are going to want something. They're going to want years taken off uh, arbitration years, something along those lines. Is Rob Manfred going to have enough ammo to get what he wants and to speed up in the game a whole new direction? I'm just saying the more we fo- we focus on how long these replays are, I think for a, a commissioner who ultimately wants the game dramatically sped up, is that a road we ultimately go down when you know when the players are going to want something when they come to the bargaining table? I mean, there's there's a whole other there's a whole host of problems with it. I think I think like Doc mentioned, and he and I have talked about this last night and, and before the show today. Um, it is, it is like the NFL catch rule. There is no real set standard for what clear and convincing evidence is because it's it's it seems to be so such a different standard held across the board by any reasonable metric. Last night, there should not have been. Like, it's, it's fairly easy to decipher. Hey, even if he had somehow touched Johan on the helmet, which he didn't, but even if he had, at the point where he was directly in front of the plate, the point where Johan's arm was outstretched his hand is on the base. That is generally what happens. That's what it was with the old rule too. If you tag high general rule of thought was, Hey, he's there. Now, sometimes you get a, a wrong slide. Uh, I believe it was Flaherty earlier this year. Was it Flaherty that, uh, or Borges, Borges, I'm sorry, who kicked up over the plate. But generally speaking, the guy's safe there. And then you, you, what happened? The other part I think about that is, is that when you have a play like that, then you have the very next play with, uh, Charlie inexplicably being called out yep. on a steal from an umpire who was not in position. Um, I, that you can't tell me that didn't affect the outcome of the game directly. I mean, those were the two, those were the, that was the turning point of the game. Have you guys ever seen, uh, I think it was Showtime that did the uh, Eric Burns where he, uh, you know, filmed the segment of an independent league team and they went with an entire robo up to determine balls and strikes. He had an earpiece in and they had, you know, computers that were reading out everything and they just radioed him the call. So you still had the human element along with the technology driven a- aspect of things. I, I mean, to me, I, I don't know. I, I ultimately think the more we complain, the more we're just going to say, you know what, there's ways to get this stuff right beyond you know, not knowing what the call is when the umpire, when the replay official gets it, you know, there are, there are technologies at place here where we can make this no doubt whatsoever. And the players that back in that Burns game that he called afterwards, they said, what were you going to argue about? We knew all those calls were, I mean, what are you going to argue with a computer? I mean, I, last night was frustrating and being there in the press box, I, I thought that place was going to explode when Charlie Culberson was called out and, you know, to me, when you're wanting pace of play, I mean, I'm I'm all for the human element of things, but man, it just feels like we're trending towards something that ultimately we're it's going to be a very big change in baseball in the next few years. I thought Charlie was going to explode. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But tying that, I don't see, and it's going to sound really lame saying this, and it's going to sound disheartening. I don't know that there's any real true way other than doing a, a blind review. I don't know that there's there's a perfect way to fix it. Because camera angles are going to obviously show what the umpire is signaling, uh, unless you have a, a zoomed-in freeze frame where all they can see is the actual play in question and nothing else. There, it, it's such a difficult question, and, and some parks have better camera angles. Like I believe I heard something about the Giants have a a better view around home plate for a replay around the plate than the Braves do, and 
it, it seems just kind of sloppily done. It kind of seems like if you're going to do it, you need to go all in on it or just don't do it at all. Well, I don't know if you guys watch Westworld, but I think they need to just have a replay official who they freeze all motor functions until the play comes in. He's completely blind, and then we turn it on, and we'll just let we'll let it be, we'll let robot slash humans be the ones to decide this. We're going to take the we're going to take this to a whole new dimension. Are we going to get get house umpires? That's right. For the, for yep. the 2019 season. Yep. yep. I want Bernard to be the umpire. It's it's going to go down. <laughs> oh man, I love uh, I love that show. So I'm fully on board with your idea. I guess to throw a silver lining into that entire debacle last night, it is very amazing though that you can go from a team that was as bad as it was in 2015 and tw- or in 2016, um, not good last year really, and then you got you have this where one miscalled game, even though it seems like we always get screwed on replay, but one badly miscalled game that changes the outcome still feels like such a gigantic game that everybody was so incensed that they're they're still off the handle about it now it is a good mark for where this braves team has come oh without question i mean i think anybody who would have anticipated that they you know would have been in that kind of position against the cubs a team that most people thought was going to be the clear force in the national league central i mean it, that was an epic game last night ron lacuna hits that go-ahead home run and, and certainly you know, if Ronas Vizcaino could hold things down just a bit, we're talking about, you know, a team that's in a very, very nice spot uh, right now with two consecutive wins over the Cubs. But still in first place, you know, still have a little bit of a buffer here, although the Phillies and the Nationals are, are definitely coming. But um, to, to have this team be where they are, considering the expectations of maybe third place in the division being the ceiling, uh, you got to be happy with that. And it took a lot for, I mean, the, like you said, the Cubs were going to be one of the, the, best projected teams in NL Central and in all of the National League. I mean, they, they won the World Series two years ago. They still have tons of talent. And so it took an absolute bullpen implosion from Atlanta back in April. And it took the officiating. And it, like these, it, felt, it felt like a playoff game. You know what I mean? Like these are two very evenly matched teams. And it took a lot of things swinging the Cubs' way to beat this team. And I – and. You, you guys are on Twitter. You guys saw all of the just the hottest of takes out, out of everything that happened last night. And everybody's finally back on the bus and it feels like everything is rolling. So even the, the tiniest little speed bump can just seem like like the Cinderella story is over. And then, you know, we're all about to turn back into a pumpkin at any second. So <laughs> so things things like this. I mean, it's it's great to it's great to be a part of seasons again where winning and losing is it's important again it's not just we're not just waiting it out for draft picks yeah everything seems to matter i'm sorry everything seems to matter this season like every game seems to be a huge game for braves fans and i absolutely love it yeah and the hot takes are are nuclear right i mean after yeah viz had had some major issues last night but just afterwards just you know me getting hit with mentions time to trade for a closer it's time to trade for a closer we need a closer it was uh it, it's nice to see that people are so invested but there are in-house options where i don't think that that has to be the immediate that they jump to this is a team that's still in first place i mean i don't think viz is a long-term answer at closer but i i, I at one point i love and i hate the fact that these hot takes are so hot after uh, something that happens last night it's it's easy to get to get caught up in the moment and and yep. over the course of over the course of seasons you're going to have calls like that go against you even with replay you're going to have blown saves 
by and large, for the amount of fire that the Braves have played with this season, they're lucky that that was only the third blown save. And so you look back and at any successful season, I guess 2013 was the last successful uh, Braves season. And you have moments like this that you can view at a distance. They just kind of suck to be right in the middle of while they're happening. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good way to sum it up. But I mean, it, how many times do you have a pitcher go five innings, walk five guys, and then you turn around and go, this dude just struck out 10 guys in Mike Fulton-Levitch. And then you not only do you follow that, then you have Luis Gohara come in, just throwing absolute gas, and then Winkler. I mean, that was like, you talk about a playoff atmosphere, that was like a run of uh, bullpen moves you'd see in a postseason game. I thought if that was the way things set up and then maybe it ultimately goes to Mentor, or is there, if there's somebody else I, I'm on the books here, I'd love Mentor's long-term potential as the closer. But um, just the pitching performance last night, although it was some rockiness from Fulton Medovich, I thought outside of what happened to Viz late, I mean, it was, it was pretty impressive stuff. I was kind of hoping that they would stick with Gohara for that long term because I've once I kind of noticed how many pitchers were were actually you know ready to break in. You know, we have four thousand starting pitching prospects that are all considered you know actual rotation prospects. It seems like every starting pitching prospect has a floor of a number three. Well, they can't all start. You can't run a twelve man rotation, unfortunately. But I really I was wondering and kind of hoping, and I still am that the Braves would be kind of brave enough to not run a six-man rotation, but to copy what Houston did with Lance McCullers in the postseason and use Gohara or or anybody, any of these young starters that doesn't necessarily have the, the longest stamina but who are completely dominant with their stuff, guys like Gohara, um, to come in and basically clean up games for your guys that generally run up high pitch counts, guys that don't go super deep into games like Fulte uh, and to an, a lesser extent, Newcomb, who so far his last three or four starts has been incredible, um, but before then struggled a little bit with with going deeper into games. Uh, even Julio at times is a stretch to get out of the to get out of the sixth and to really even sometimes get out of the fifth. When you have a guy like Gohara who could come in once or twice a week and give you seven innings basically in relief, I don't like to call those guys long relievers though because it gives it, it's almost like the game manager role. In, in the NFL, where if you're called a game manager as a quarterback, it basically means you're not a great starting quarterback. Like, if you're a long reliever in baseball, it just means you weren't good enough to be in the starting rotation. But a guy like Gohara who could come in and, and play cleanup and give the rest of your bullpen a night off, and that basically gives you two starting pitchers, which I I think that that would be an awesome way to go. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's definitely the way to use Gohara. You just wonder is how how long how long is that sustainable for? You know, because when you think about Fulte has had trouble getting through the fifth inning, you know, how much of a pitch count is Oroka going to be on for a long period of time? And then you're already talking that, so that's two opportunities a week for him. Then what happens if you know, say we have another issue like Tehran had in Philly, or you know, McCarthy runs into trouble? I mean, unless you and I don't anticipate that they're going to move on about Sanchez into the, the bullpen too and you have two guys like that but I just wonder how much can you use Gohara in that capacity because I mean really now that's the only way to use him because there's just not a pass uh, an immediate path to the rotation right now and I, and I love using him like that but I remember talking to Brian Snicker about this just the way that Indians even used Andrew Miller in the past and you, know, you mentioned the Astros play it's like you love the idea of it but to do that for a long period of time, you really worry about, you know, how much of a, of a strain are you putting on a guy? 
I understand that too. I think you'd have to you'd have to give it like a cap. Like he could do like say no more than six or seven innings a week, basically. And if you run into trouble a third or fourth time, then that's what the, then your the rest of your bullpen just kind of has to suck it up. I, I know where the I, I see where the downside could be. I also just think that most most commonly Soroka's not generally as he gets into the swing of things he's not generally a guy that's going to be out by the fifth inning he's generally pretty judicious with his pitch counts since he doesn't walk a lot of people uh and he, he induces a lot of ground balls uh Colby yeah. Allard seems to be the same way Fulty just is a different type of pitcher for a guy that has Fulty stuff he's not great at finishing guys off with two strikes consistently or at least like when he has them 0-2, it's very common to see him go 2-2 and 3-2. Now, last night, obviously, he had the 10 strikeouts, which is awesome. But for a guy with his stuff, too often you see Fulty rack up six, seven pitch at-bats because I think I think I attribute it more to an inability to be consistently off the plate, if that makes any sort of sense. Like the Greg Maddox be three to four inches off the plate consistently to the point where if you push it up to six, the guy still has to kind of swing at it because – You've been there all night. Fulty stuff seems to either be a strike or a wide ball. It doesn't seem to be very many close balls with with Fulty. I would agree with that. And I think a lot of times what he gets into trouble with is when he tries to nibble because he's not a nibbler, right? You know, he's a guy who's going to overpower you. And I think when he tries to set guys up for those finishing pitches, I think that's where he gets himself into some issues. And that's why you have these runs where he has, like last night, five walks to go along with 10 strikeouts because the stuff is so overpowering at times, but setting it up is sometimes the problem. He kind of is, is to me, he's this year's version of Newcomb where with that same, same uh, real quick to O2, but he would, you know, half the guys that he winds up getting to O2, he he winds up running to three, two. And accordingly, you know, he's, he's got fantastic stuff. He just, he can't put anybody away. The biggest difference being Fulty, I think, is two, three years older than Nuke. So Nuke has taken that step forward, and Fulty has kind of been mired in this. He's going to live up to his potential one-day type of thing. Now, he's been really good about keeping runs off the board, and his peripherals, by and large, indicate that, that he's, he's having a pretty good year. I just wonder if... If he can take that next step forward, because a one-two punch of Fulty and Newcomb is just that could be devastating. If he if he can take that next step, pure stuff. Why the difference awesome. between the two of them though is the Newcomb has the has the far superior secondary pitch, right? And we saw him last year really rely on that fastball and curveball. Now that he's added that change, it's made mm-hmm. his curveball that much more effective. It's made the fastball that much more effective. Uh, Fulty does not have that second pitch where it's just it's eye-opening you know he doesn't have that that aspect i think if he adds that that's where we're talking about him you know becoming a truly an elite pitcher um that's that's something the newcomb's doing right now to perfection especially these last 20 innings i'm not certain that Fulty ever really gets it because there's at times where his knuckle curve uh looks looks plus and then there's starts where his changeup looks dominant the problem with Fulty is it's not whether he has a game to game it's whether he has it batter to batter and that that's almost like Vizcaino's problem if Vizcaino does not have his off-speed pitch there's no kind of has it it, just, it is not there period the difference in Newcomb this year has been that he's taking so much off of his fastball instead of running it up to 97 to 99 He's taking it off and he's running 92, 94. And now that he's able to spot it where he wants, it's almost like he's discovered how to actually pitch effectively instead of just throw. 
And now he's realized that you can take, it's almost like Julio Tehran when Julio figured out that if he, if he throws his two seamer 88 to 90 and he gets a lot more run than if he throws it 92, then he's actually a far more effective pitcher just because he's able to locate the ball better and put it in better spots. That's something that I, I, I don't know if Fulty definitely doesn't have that gene yet. As you can see, whenever he gets angry, he just throws as hard as he can. Um, I, I wonder if that clicks for Fulty, it'll be great. Cause he, I, I just wonder if it ever will click. And I'm, it's interesting that you mentioned that because Zach Elder and I have talked about this a ton and where the influence comes for those guys being able to lay off the fastball a little bit, especially, you know, with, uh, with Julio Tehran, is that come from Chuck Hernandez or does it come from Annabelle Sanchez? Cause Sanchez, that's where he's really taken steps over the, uh, over the latter part of his year. And you see Sanchez and Tehran talking a lot together and you wonder if, if that's the influence that they're getting from from Annabelle is just being able to, to, to know when to take something off to make your secondary stuff, you know, that much better too. And, and obviously Tehran's, you know, use of the changeup this year, it's, it, you know, he's been as good with the changeup only two other times. And those were two all-star seasons that he's had. So um, I find it interesting that Sanchez, it, whether it's Sanchez or Hernandez, that's the one that's having the impact on these guys and, and getting that sense of being able to just take a little bit off with your, your fastball and be that much more effective. Julio has been great to watch this year. I think that, that everybody, um, everybody was kind of nervous after, after the first two starts. And then it's like, he just flipped that switch and, and took a big step in being more of a, more of a pitcher and using his movement and hitting his spots. I mean, that, that run that he went on before his, his most recent start against Chicago was really, really impressive. I mean, it's, it's tough to remember sometimes that he's 26, 27, and he's the he's the veteran of the staff. Yeah, and he, I mean, obviously a guy who's had a run of opening day starts, and with that comes this sort of, you know, air to it. You know, he, he, we, it's been said many times, you know, by many Braves fans, I don't know that he's ever going to be the guy that's going to be the unequivocal ace of the staff, but he has those runs. I mean, he's had two all-star seasons, and, you know, he's, he's putting up a lot of the, you know, the numbers this year that are much in line with those years that he's had in the past where he's been really, really strong. Um, and, I, and it's an important year for him. You know, we've talked about the contract and how that contract is, is imminently movable and, you know, how he, the amount of club control, if this team wants to do something, does Julio, you know, is that a name that you're going to hear? I mean, a year ago it was, it was bandied about whether or not he might be on the move. I don't see that, that happening, but I think his, his contract and the, and the sometimes lack of consistency is always going to make people wonder. And I think a season like this, to have this kind of season when the team has so many young pitchers that are coming up and you have so many more on the way, I mean, I think this is a, this is a big year and a statement year of sorts for Julio. And I, I attribute a lot of it, and Julio, I believe Julio has said at one time that it was working with Annabelle a lot, that actually that he learned he could take some off. Um, but... I, I think that fans to kind of overreact a little bit to Julio because just because he's pitched out of your number, just because he's pitched out of your number one spot does not mean that he ever really should have been considered an ace. It's because he was the best of what you had. And for two seasons, Julio did far more than anyone had a right to ask. Now he, that came in with him being the number one pitching prospect in baseball when he was acquired from the Yankees. Um, but to this point, you look at Julio's career, and he's I believe he's just turned 27. He's got over 1,000 innings pitched. He's been a very solid, if not extremely spectacular guy, but that's not his fault. Julio is a very effective pitcher. It just depends on what you're expecting out of that particular pitcher. And you mentioned 
the what what if they might be looking to move him at the deadline. I do believe I don't believe that any one of the veteran pitchers their names would be off the table, and that's Julio, that's Fulty, that's McCarthy, that's Anibal. I think I think basically the only starting pitcher that would not have would that be pretty much no touch is Soroka at this point. I would agree with that, and and I think Newcomb's playing his way into being very much. I should have said Newcomb. I should have said Newcomb um, as well. That was my yeah, mistake. I think, I think Soroka is definitely putting himself in that class as well. I mean, he's he's just been. I am sorry, Newcomb's putting himself in that class as well. But yeah, I mean, look, I, I think I think people are always going to wonder about Tehran, and, and you always have the the added piece here of Alex Anthopoulos coming in, and he's not the one who set the stage for all this, right? I mean, you always wonder how is a new GM going to view pieces. I think that's a conversation we had with him a, a couple times in in the winter. Uh, down in Orlando is what, how do you view someone else's toys? How do you come in and, and look at prospect rankings and decide who do you bank on? Who do, who's movable? Who do when do you start to move guys? I think that's all comes into play too. When you're talking about, you know, guys who are under contract and, and what you think you need to do to help the team take the next step. I would not, I I've go, I go back and forth. Like I, I was trying to, trying to find a, a trade candidate or a, a team that would match up in a trade for Julio in the off season, uh, partially because I did, didn't expect him to do what he's doing now, but also figured that he, there is still some value in that contract. But now I kind of go back and forth. I say, well, do you, do you capitalize on the contract and you spread that money out somewhere else? Or you try and cash in on assets at this point, I would almost say hang on to him. And since you've got McCarthy is going to come off the off the roster at the end of this season anyway, if he can string together a couple of good starts, you can afford to kind of shop him to somebody who's going to be in need of pitching because the Braves have plenty of guys that can step in, whether it's Gahara transitioning back into a starting role or calling up Allard or any any number of things. Freed hits a hot streak, and you can call him up too. So, um we had kind of talked before the show about whether or not Fulty would be a candidate to get moved in the off season as opposed to during the season. And I, I wonder if um, I hate to, I hate to get into team chemistry and all that, but once you, once you start um, disassembling something and you start saying that, you know, we're going to trade Fulty to the reds for whoever, or, you know, then, then that gets a, a little dicier, I think. Yeah. And, and I will say, I mean, Fulty is a great presence in the clubhouse. I mean, I know at, at times we see him get fiery on the mound, but he's he's much more laid back off the off the field than you would, than you would ever imagine. I, I mean, especially you know, I've I've known him for years now, and and he since he's become a dad, he's actually he's even calmer than he was before. I mean, it's just there's a difference to him on the mound. I don't necessarily think that there's a, a team chemistry issue whatsoever uh, with him uh, at all. And you know, I. I don't know. I mean, I find it interesting you talk about, you know, a matchup for, for Tehran and, you know, where you potentially would or could if move him if you did. I think, if, you know, this team is going to have a lot of money to spend in this offseason. Do they do they feel like they need to go out and get an unequivocal ace or do they get him, get one, you know, via trade? You know, obviously everyone talks about Chris Archer with this team. Do they go out and make that maneuver? And then if you're not asking Tehran to be the top guy, how does that change his value too? And if you're adding pieces where he kind of slides down a little bit, does the contract in his place in a, in a rotation seem that much more safe, you know, much more to his liking or to your liking for him. Uh, if you bring in somebody that, that can really hold down that top spot. 
and we were actually talking about that a little bit before the break as well. It, it's going to be an interesting dilemma for the Braves if they continue on this run that they're on and you approach the All-Star break and you're still you know, either in first or or at least in striking distance of the division or a wild card, what do you do? Because everybody's always assumed that it was next season that the Braves were really set up to compete. Um, so far this year, they've, they've been kind of like the Twins were a season ago or even the Brewers where they're just a step ahead of where they were supposed to be. So what do you do? Do you do you buy at the deadline, or are you still sellers? And who do you look to move, and, and where do you look to go? When people bring up the starting pitching, that's not where this free agent class is particularly strong. There's a couple that are really strong, but anybody thinking that Clayton Kershaw is getting out of L.A. is crazy. They're not going to let him get away. And let's say, for the sake of argument, that he does, he's not going to go to Atlanta. He's going to go to Texas, where they have just as much money to throw around at people as Atlanta does. Um, then you get into guys that are kind of second tier. Your Dallas Keuchel's, um, who had a really strong year in Houston, but I don't think he's—I don't think anybody would call him an ace. Um, you've got Patrick Corbin, who actually, if you're going to go after a starter, would be the guy that I would look towards. Uh, you've got Drew Pomeranz, I believe, as well, and that's—that's that's really that kind of class of, of pitcher. There's not a whole lot of there's no no real game changers out there. In that case, I wonder. If I'm going to spend on a free agent like that, then they need to be substantially better than my in-house options that you don't have to pay $12 million a year to. I think what you look at is obviously everybody's going to try to connect the dots with Bryce Harper. Um, They're going to try to throw in Manny Machado. And then you look at bullpen options like Andrew Miller is a guy who's going to be available. Craig Kimbrell, which I'm sure everybody in Atlanta would love to have Kimbrell back. So it's it's an interesting dilemma. I think... I kind of maintain, I kind of think that the Braves would go and try to bring players in and capitalize on a, on, on a strong momentum going into the all-star break. Uh, I think Alex is a, is a traditionally pretty aggressive trader. He's not, you know, he's not a, uh, he's not one to shy away from something. So I, I've been kind of looking at some trade candidates for that. I don't necessarily look Chris Archer, although you have the prospects to do it. Uh, I, I kind of would see the Braves trying to, add more to their bullpen and find somebody long-term who is under contract and is already good. And the name that pops up is Rysel Iglesias. Um, Cincinnati's an awful team with a horrible GM and Walt Jockety, who is an idiot, so you could get him cheap. Um, they have some other players that you could really use on that squad. If, say, the Jose Bautista experiment fails and you want to keep Camargo in a utility role, they've got Scooter Jeanette, who can handle third base and second base, doesn't make a whole lot of money, can also handle corner outfield, gives you a lot of left-handed pop. For, is, could you see the Braves making a move like that, or do you think if they're going to go in, they're going to go all in or not at all? Well, Iglesias last year, the Reds said he was completely off limits. So um, I'll be interested to see if they are willing to change that now. Uh, it's interesting because the previous regime was pretty adamant, talking about obviously John Hart and John Coppola, telling us multiple times, we refuse to get into the price of starting pitching. We've acquired so many of, of our own guys, developed them, blah, blah, blah. I'm interested to see if Dallas Anthopoulos is of that same mind where you look at, you know, two years ago, the deals that guys like Jeff Samarji get, you know, they, they looked at that and just said, we have, we want no part of that. Are, are the Braves going to be willing because they've spent so much of their resources, developing pitchers to, to go out and, and spend money that way? Or are they much more, you know, in a position to go out and get a little bit better at a position in uh, an everyday player? Um, I, I would really be surprised though, to see them, really make a splash uh, as far as trying to get a closer because I think they have guys 
in-house that could be really good closers if given more of an opportunity to, to hold down that spot. I mean, Zach Dilder and I spent a ton of time talking about this on today's Chopcast with Dan Winkler and A.J. Minter. I mean, I think Minter has everything you're looking for, and he has it in a much cheaper rate than you're going to get for a, you know for anything where you're going to have to go out and spend capital to get a guy. And, and I think the Reds, because they're in the position they're in, they're going to be aggressive in what they want. Is that really? Do you really want to spend assets on on a piece like that when you can potentially could develop it in house? I mean, I realize the window is is surprisingly looking to be open for the Braves this year. The Dodgers are down. You know, the Diamondbacks just took a hit with AJ Pollock being out. There doesn't seem to be a team in the National League that's the head and shoulders class at the Braves. You think there's no way they can take those guys down. So maybe they will be a little bit more aggressive than uh, I'm anticipating. But I just don't know. And, and I know Alex Anthopoulos has this, this uh, long history of being a gunslinger of sorts in the trade market. I just don't know how aggressive he's going to be when they have so much in-house that maybe they could shore up some po- some problems without really having to go out and spend anything. And I should mention... I do believe that Minter is your, is a, is your closer long-term. I don't think that there's any question of that. I don't necessarily think Minter is ready for it right now at this second because while Minter has sublime outings where nobody can touch anything, there are far too many instances where, at least to this year, he falls in love with his cutter and starts throwing his cutter three, four, five pitches in a row. Um, and at the moment, it's a new pitch. It's almost like when Shelby Miller came over and had that dominant season with the Braves because – well, when you come to a Roger McDowell-led team, he teaches you the sinker. And Major League Baseball is nothing if not studious. So they like to see what a pitcher has. If you've got a different pitch, you'll generally do better with that pitch. Well, then the word got out that Shelby had a sinker. Uh, then he started got hit a little bit harder, and then all of a sudden he got hurt and all, all that good stuff. I'm not saying that to bang on Shelby. But until I can see A.J. be a little bit more consistent in his strikes – I don't know that I think that he's any better of an option than Aroidus right now. I think if he could start to backdoor that cutter to right-handed hitters a little bit more frequently instead of pounding it inside all the time, I'd be a little bit happier with it. I think eventually Minter could be every bit as good as Billy Wagner was. I just don't think he's ready right now, and I'm not sure that he'd be ready next year. But at some point, you've got to decide to pull the trigger on that. So I, I get both sides of that argument. I, I just I think if you can get better now – and it's somebody that you're going to control for a while, I think you have to do it. Especially if you're talking about trading from starting pitching. Because, like I said, you've got a glut of it. They can't all start, and they can't all move to the bullpen. I do kind of wonder whether or not Baltimore would be a good a good team to match up with, and not not for Machado. I think that the, the cost is going to wind up being so incredibly prohibitive for him, uh, even, for, even for just a couple of months, that, that you don't get into that. But I think that if you're looking at guys like Michael Gibbons, uh, Darren O'Day, who strikes out a lot of guys and doesn't walk a lot of guys, even though he kind of gives up a bunch of home runs, if you're just kind of looking at something where you could kind of lengthen the bullpen a little bit to where Sam Freeman's not your first option every time, I mean, I he's got to be tracking for record appearances at this point. You know, you don't want to burn him out too soon. He's been really effective outside of um, outside of that that one game that fell apart in Chicago. So I would, I would be curious to see if you can add some more bullpen pieces. We had kind of talked about Kelvin Herrera. Um, Kansas city is not really going to wind up making a whole lot of waves. So I would be curious about Herrera and I would be curious to see. Okay. Austin Riley is killing it right now. 
in in Gwinnett, but it's also been eight games. And if you're going to wind up calling him up in the middle of the season, you're throwing him right into the middle of a pennant race at the one position of need that the Braves have. So I would almost wonder whether or not Anthopolis, if he does decide to to go full on cowboy at the at the deadline and say, what's it going to take to get Kelvin Herrera and Mike Moustakis just a stretch run? Because Moustakis has been down this road before. He's been the leader on a young team. He's got a World Series ring. He's, he could bring that, that veteran presence. Not to mention, Moustakis and Marcakis sounds like a Greek sitcom. So, <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think that they're, this is the best roster that the Braves have had in years, but it's still not without a couple of different areas that could use just a little shove. Obviously, the guy's been ultra-aggressive in the past in, in his trades, but I would just be, really be surprised to see Alex Anthopoulos enter you know, the race for a, a, you know, Donaldson, Machado, and Moustakis. To me, this team is in a position where they don't necessarily need to do that. I know it's obviously a sign that you're all in as an organization going into you know, a surprising season, but uh, I, just, I just don't see the guy doing that. I, I, I think there's too much... You know, there's too much they could do, you know, in-house. And I just would really be surprised to see him go out and get a guy just for a couple of months. Well, let, let me ask you this. Because um, you just ha- you mentioned Machado and Donaldson. And, and uh, I had just brought up Moustakis, who, who you were referencing. These guys are all going to wind up being the third-base option for the Braves. So let's talk for a second about Austin Riley. He's obviously killing it right now. Um, if... The Jose Bautista experiment, we'll call it, winds up being deemed a bust. And Johan Camargo isn't seen as a long-term option, who, with Dansby out, he's gotten some chances to start and hasn't really been setting the world on fire, even though he did finally learn how to take a walk. Let's say Austin Riley keeps it up for another couple of weeks. At what point are you comfortable bringing him up and saying, you know what, get on the bus. We're all... We're all on this thing together. Let's go. September. Uh, I, I mean, to me, I just don't see the point in, in pushing him up and, and, and maybe not to say stunting his growth. John Hardo used to have this whole funny way of talking about this stuff. He would, he would, I don't think that he meant it this way, but he would say, you got to wait for these guys to finish themselves off. And I, you know, I think that you got to give Austin Riley some more time. I just don't think. I just don't think moving him up just when he's having some run of success at AAA. I know it's exciting. I just don't think that they're that all that needly to be that aggressive. And you've already got Ozzy, you've already got Acuna, you've already got Soroka up. Do they really need to have four of the youngest players in baseball up at one time? I mean, I think there's there's things that can be done. And I, I think in the meantime, I just don't think moving him up now is is the right move. I, I would really that that in getting a rental that in order getting a rental would really surprise me as their fix at third base. I think you know they've seen enough with Flaherty. You've got Camargo. I mean, whether or not this Batista thing works out, uh, I think there's a, there's enough options there without them having to push things with Riley before they're comfortable with it. And to be fair, it if when you look at Austin Riley, it's really been what, four strong months? He had half a season last year where he tore it up and then the start of this season. So you still would like to see him put a full season of dominance together. It's not like he hasn't gone on the Acuna run or the Soroka run where it was sustained over multiple levels over the entire course of the season. So I would agree. I don't think they want to rush Riley. Um, But 
it is getting kind of hard to ignore what he's doing, the types of swings he's putting on, the growth that he's made as a player. So I, I, I think I would agree with you. I think September is more likely. Um, but that's not to say that I don't think that that would impact their decisions as far as third base targets as far as free agency. I don't think they'd be shelling out any long-term contracts to say a Machado who you'd have to pay. First, you'd have to convince him to play third base again, but then you'd have to pay him probably $250, $300 million or a Josh Donaldson uh, when you've got Austin Riley showing that he's, he's not nearly as far away as people thought he was maybe dating back to the start of the season. Yeah, but Donaldson to me is the that's the one that I think is gonna until he signs somewhere else, you're gonna continue to see his name come up for the Braves. Obviously, an Auburn guy, you know, from the South, you know, ties to Anthopolis. That that is going to be rumor until it's it, until he signs somewhere else. I think that's gonna continue because if this team does feel like they're really really close and they do end up in a postseason this year, and they feel like we're just one or two pieces away. Josh Donaldson is a very different piece at this age than Austin Riley trying to figure things out as a rookie. So if you sign Donaldson for three years, you know, what does that mean for Riley two years from now? I mean, that would obviously have to be a wait-and-see approach, but it's, it's all about where do they think they are at the end of the season, what do they get out of the duration of this year. Because if they really think they're that close, I mean, I, I know it seems crazy because Riley's right there. But I wouldn't be stunned if that's an ultimately a move that we see them go down the, the path with, whether it comes to completion or not. Because if that that's a place where they could get a lot better and potentially have an inroads with a guy who could be a game changer for them. I'm not necessarily against adding third base. One of the, my one of my least favorite terms in building a team is blocking. Like you can't block a prospect. I think that's kind of dumb. Uh, I think. The, if the prospect is better than that player, he will eventually shine through, regardless of contract, when you have teams that are looking to compete and looking to win. Um, and I, I agree with you that Donaldson Donaldson would provide, no doubt, one of the premier bats in the entire National League. I was going through this uh, a couple days ago, maybe, where I was really I was just looking for a way to show how insanely good Mike Trout has been up to this point in his career. Uh, and I was comparing total F-wars of, of players, total value uh, of what they've done through the last six and a half years. And Josh Donaldson ranks like fourth or fifth. Like he's, he's ahead of Harper. He's ahead of, of just about every other name you could think of outside of Kershaw and, and Trout. Yeah. I mean, he's been, he's been unbelievable. And I obviously, you know, staying in the field has been a, a bit of an issue and you start to, to add the age factor, but if this team feels like it has, it has this window opening, I mean, could do a lot worse than adding him, you know, is a, is a big power bat. I and mean, certainly if this was an American League team, we wouldn't even be having this conversation, right? You'd be like, well, you can roll that guy out at your DH every day and then have Austin Riley and him platoon at third. But, um, you know, it, that to me, it, it, it makes a lot of sense that they're going to make a run for him. I mean, back in the winter, we were wondering, is Jose Batista going to come to Atlanta as a free agent because of his relationship with Anthopolis and lo and behold, you know, it hasn't been spectacular so far, but here he is in Atlanta. So I wonder if that means that we'd have the inside track on Marcus Stroman. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule that out. I mean, I think Anthopoulos likes his guys, and I think any GM is going to like his guys. But you know, we saw them add a lot of Dodgers in the offseason, and that was the organization that he knew intimately these past couple of years. Um, 
you know, it's in, it's just going to be a matter of where does Toronto think they are? Do they look at the, the state of the East and say, how in the world are we going to compete? You know, I think that's, that's going to be an interesting factor to see, you know, if he's able to pry away some of those big names like that from, uh, from the Blue Jays. I mean, if, if the Dodgers end up not having as, as strong a season as they're capable of and, and Alex Wood keeps running his bad luck, I could see him trying to reacquire Alex Wood or Akinta Maeda who doesn't generally have a clear path to start out there in LA there's a ton of options out there it's going to be really interesting to see where Alex Anthopoulos differs from the pre really the previous two regimes because even Frank Wren while he was fairly large in free agency uh with with some key deals and, and with some key international signings he wasn't you know an adept he didn't really go out and, and wasn't really aggressive in the trade market himself and Coppola was loath to give up uh, prospect capital so it will be interesting to see what Alex does because he's never really been in a spot where he's had this the same draft capital that he has here in Atlanta I mean he had a few he had he had Thor when he was uh when he was in Toronto he had a couple really good prospects over there but not at the same depth that he has here in Atlanta and one thing that they've mentioned before about why when I was, I was talking with um with one of the Toronto writers up there uh, before the season started, right when Alex was getting introduced about just some, some insight into him. Uh, and I, I was mentioning up the, the very aggressive free agency and aggressive trades. And he mentioned something about the fact that Toronto is not generally a, a good free agent landing spot. So that kind of forced Alex's hand. So I'm not even sure that we've seen Anthopolis's true style yet, because the, the situation in Toronto is a, is a wholly different situation than almost any other park or any other organization in the league. Yeah. And it's interesting. You mentioned with Ren, I mean, he didn't trade prospect capital because we were talking, Grant McCauley and I were talking about this yesterday. Back in the day, their top prospects were J.R. Graham and Sean Gilmartin. I mean, it was a very different and Jose Peraza. landscape than when, than what you're looking at now. I mean, it's like, you know, you're in a toy store right now. If you're in Topless and you come in here and you've got all these, all these high-end prospects, and what can I, what could I potentially get with these guys? So, yeah, I mean, they're going to have money, and they've got prospect capital. I mean, th- there's a reason why Anthopoulos, after a couple years away, you know, I'm sure he had some other opportunities. Why this job looks so appealing to him, but to come in despite the sanctions that were coming down, because there's just so much, uh, you know, going the Braves' way, and um, you know, it's uh, it, it, you're right. It, it really is going to be interesting to see when he has all this at his disposal. What is his style going to be in making this team better? And yeah, has he proved in Toronto? It was the trade deadline in 2015, I think, when he got yeah. Tulowitzki and David yep. Price within a couple days. I mean, he's not afraid to just throw out what he's got. But the the good news now is that he could, even if he were to trade away four or five prospects, heaven forbid, then you still have so many. It's still such a stock system. You could get away from something like that and still be a top ten. Top ten system in, in the game, so yeah. Don't don't bring in Tulowitzki and Price now. I, that, no, that, God, that no. would be bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, not now. But uh, you know when they they made a pretty deep run that year. Yeah, and and you could you could see too um, after the the Batista bat flip against the Rangers. I mean that that entire place went absolutely berserk, and so now you're going to see a very similar type thing to the fan base where everybody just everybody's on board, you know, and, and adding that one little piece. I mean, you're seeing now how 
the Braves are getting record TV numbers over the over the past couple of years. People are starting to take notice again. So as this as this thing keeps keeps rolling a little bit, I I would be really curious to see when when a move gets made and what it's going to look like. Yep, it's going to be. I mean, for the first time in in a while, it, it's 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 going to be a fun trade deadline for the Atlanta. And now from the end of okay, who's going to be on the move? Who do we have to worry about? getting, you know, traded over that we're going to be, you know, all of us writers are going to be up, you know, piling away all night trying to, to take, make sense of this thing and be on conference calls. We, it might actually be fun for once. And that's, uh, that's something we haven't said in a long time. Yeah. We no longer have to worry if Freddie's going to end up being the Braves version of Joey Votto, where he's just stuck on a team with no talent around him. Uh, we're, we're fast running out of time and we always have some fun questions to talk about. So before we get to those, I got one more thing to ask. If uh, do you think that this that this current level of play for the Braves? Do you think this is sustainable, or do you think this is kind of more some some good luck and just a hot start? Do you think they sustain this over the course of a full season? I think they do because of the teams they've played, right? I mean, if they had gone on, or if this had been largely against you know the the Marlins and you know whatever and the Reds and whatever god awful teams you want to throw in there, they've played some really strong teams. You know, throughout this start, do I think they're probably going to level off a little bit? Yeah, and I think you know the Nationals are, are obviously you know they're on their own run now, and, and they're coming. I mean, I think there's still a, a legitimate chance that they they overtake the Braves in the division. But I think this team, this Braves team, is going to be in the thick of this thing uh, for the rest of the year. So, I mean, again, I think that's why that that postseason, uh, that that I'm um, sorry, the trade deadline is going to be so intriguing because I do think they have staying power. Do you think that they do you think they make the playoffs this year or do you think that if that they if they don't win the division that that they're not going to get in? Do you think that the you know Central ends up grabbing both those wild card spots? I'm sorry, can you I'm getting that that uh flapping sound again. Can you repeat that? So do you uh do you think the Braves actually do end up making the postseason this year or do they kind of have to uh, You know, I I think it's going to be close. I mean, I think I think that obviously the NL West is going to get a second wild card. Um, it's just it get a wild card. It's just a matter of does the other one come out of the central or is it going to be the Braves slash Nationals in the East? I think there, I, I think there's a very strong chance. I'd put it, I'd say seventy percent right now. I'd be on board seventy percent that they get in. You think you'd be saying that before the season started? No, oh no, no, no. <laughs> when we, Zach, Zach and I were pretty clear. We thought third place in this division was the ceiling. We thought it was the Nationals, the Mets, and then were the, was it going to be the Braves or the Phillies in third place? I, I mean, I'm telling you, if they anything better than third place in this division this year is a win. I don't if, if they implode and they lose this division by ten games to the Nationals, you still cannot be mad. You still have to be happy with this team. They had the best record in the National League. No one would have ever imagined that. I mean, I know everyone's excited and they want to see what's next. How, how are they, they going to get better? How are they going to want to make a trade? No one anticipated this. I'm telling you, Braves country enjoy every second of this because you never saw this coming. And they've done it with three the three youngest players in Major League Baseball. Yep. Two of them, the two of the most exciting players, where you have Ozzy, who looks like he's trying to sit, to raise your Jose Altuve and and surpass him. Um, yep. And then you've got Ronald Acuna, who it seems every time he steps up to the bat to the plate. That it, it, it's must-watch television. If it weren't for Shohei Otani, the entire baseball world would be glued to every single Acuna at bat. Yep, it's. It, I mean, it's. Uh, it, it's. It, it really is like 
I mean, it, it has that Vic level vibe to it, right? When Michael Vick was on, was at the top of his game, and you wanted to see what happened every time he was on the field. It finally feels like Atlanta has something like that again. And I, you know, I'm a big Freddie Freeman fan. He is one of the most underrated and consistently underrated stars in baseball. No one is tuning in for every Freddie Freeman at bat, but they will tune in for Ronald Acuna, and I think we're going to continue to see that. Well, they should, because over the course of the last six and a half years, Freddie Freeman has been worth almost the exact same value as Bryce Harper, just throwing that yep. out there. He's been, I mean, he, hey, he's been spectacular, but he has been quietly spectacular, and that's, that's okay. I think that's the way Freddie Freeman likes it. And I know that the power rankings are they're pretty much nothing, you know, but it's, it's really interesting to see how many national people are taking notice because we've known about all these Acuna and Soroka. We've known about these guys for years, but now you have people going, wait a minute, who are these guys? Is this team for real? And Bra- you know, it's like quarter of the way into the season, the Braves are getting ranked as fifth in certain power rankings, which is, even if it's nothing, that's not nothing. That's something. And that's excellent. Yeah, that's respect, right? I mean, that's people have been dying for, for some you know, some resemblance of, of respect and here you go. It's yeah. It's a. It's a I mean, it, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's, I, I don't think any of us ever saw this coming. You know, being around this team, we knew they were building something, and for it to be here in 2018. I mean, you know, on the flip side, I, I you know I saw John Hart the other day on MLB Network, and you got to wonder for those guys, like how hard is this to swallow? You know, to watch this from afar has to be just demoralizing. Uh, yeah, I wonder if. Uh... If Copy still has any of his Braves gear, and he'll, you know he'll wear his, uh, you know, he'll wear his Bonifacio jersey while he sits on the couch watching the uh, watching games. I don't know. It's got to be tough. I mean, I can't imagine what oh, these yeah. guys are going through. I mean, you know, it's 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 to, to watch somebody else do this with something that you you know really laid the foundation for has to be a very 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 difficult thing. All right, so before before we go, Doc has a genius idea that he does every week now, and it's it's a hundred percent his segment uh, where he comes up with questions. Since sometimes just going straight into baseball talk for some people, not us, but for some people, can get a little tiresome. So he, he always has some fun, lighten the mood questions, just in case either one of us, not throwing any names, but most likely me, were particularly annoying during the show. So we like to end it on some levity. So without further ado. Doc, if you'd like to take this away. All right. So we have procured six questions for you uh, today. The first of which is, do you have a celebrity doppelganger? Well, a lot of people think it's Nick Green. I don't know if that's. I don't think I would consider Nick Green a celebrity, but yeah, um, a lot of people think uh, they get confused when I wear glasses. Me and Nick Green. I can see that. I can definitely see some Nick Green. All right. Uh, second question: What is a household chore that you would sell your soul to never have to do again? Dishes, because we don't have a dishwasher. I got rid of it to put uh, one of those like um, wine coolers in. Oh, jeez. So, okay. Yeah, we have to wash dishes by hand, and that's that's my own doing. <laughs> what, what about you, Dylan? What uh, what's your your most hated chore? Oh, there are so many, but the biggest one, it's not, I don't know if I can really call it a household chore. It's just something I hate to do. And I'm going to sound like a Grinch, but it's putting up Christmas decorations. So it's like Uh hanging ornaments on the tree, all that stuff. And maybe it'll change when I have children. But for right now, I would rather not have a tree at all than hang ornaments. That is pretty Grinchy. I'm not going (laughs) to lie. (laughs) 
Um, you see, I I will do laundry under protest. I'll do yard work. I'll do I'll do dishes. Uh, no no wine cooler uh, for me. But I will. Um, it's not that I won't dust. It's that I just don't dust. <laughs> I don't see the point. It's just going to get dusty again. I will just let it accumulate. But uh, okay, third question: uh, If you were a candle, what scent would you be? Hmm. Um, sweat and desperation. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We're just making a, um, we'll say something vanilla. I think they should sell sweat and desperation should be a, like, um, you know, they should sell that at Bath and Body Works. Isn't that just some cash. Axe or tag body spray? <laughs> What's that, Dylan? So isn't that just Axe or tag body spray? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we were all there. We all went to middle school once. Yeah. Well, by the way, Nick Swisher was a uh, was the last grown man I saw use axe. So that's uh, uh that that's does not shock me in the slightest. Yeah, and pretty much tells you everything you need to know about axe. Um. All right. So hang on, hang on. What about you, Doc? What's your candle scent? I'm curious. Uh, balsam and cedar. I would actually smell like Christmas all year long. Wow. Yeah. Eating on his uh, his refusal to put up lights. You know, I, I'm I'm doubling down on it. I, <laughs> I just, what can I say? What about you, Dylan? Are you are you more sweat and desperation, or are you balsam and cedar? It would be some sort of citrus. Uh, as as girly as it may sound, I do like candles. So, like when my wife will will come home with five thousand candles, I'm not as upset as I should be because sometimes I like the candles, sometimes I like to light them and smell them. I I'm, I have a big fan of like citrus. I think that we've managed to cast a pretty wide net between the three of us there. <laughs> That's my goal. Don't fish with a line. Just throw the net out there so you can grab as many potentials as possible. That's, that's a good idea. All right. So in previous weeks, Corey, we, ha- we have um, asked the question to tell, a, tell an embarrassing childhood story. Uh, but I want to change it up a little bit this week and say, tell a story about a time when you unintentionally acted like a tool. Hmm. Unintentionally acted like a tool. Um, wow. That's a good question. Um, unintentionally acted like a tool. Um, okay. So, um, a couple weeks ago, um, we were at, uh, well, I guess it was about a week and a half ago at, uh, at SunTrust, uh, Mark Bowman and Kevin McAlpin and I were down there watching batting practice and Dustin from, uh, from Stranger Things was there. Right. So, um, I don't know there's a tool, but I kind of, we geeked out, I geeked out to talk to a 14 year old. So I, that kind of felt like a tool, but I went up and wanted to shake his hand and I was like, I love what you guys do. And he was like, thanks man. And so I got to talk to a 14 year old. So that kind of sounds like that, that was a bit of a toolish, toolish thing to do as a grown man. I love the impression. Oh, that's funny. Now I remember seeing the uh, seeing the pictures of him standing with uh, standing with Ender on the field. So. Yeah, Ender Ender went up to him and said, "I'm 11," and he was kind of <laughs> confused. And he was like, turned around and he was like, "Oh, <laughs> that's too funny." I, w- I wonder if somebody put him up to that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he watches. I don't know if they just told him to say that or what. But he seemed genuinely excited to see the kid. Oh, that's funny. I pulled out into a funeral procession once because I got really antsy in traffic, and I felt uh, it took me about six <laughs> seconds to realize what I did, and I felt like a total d-bag. Um, okay, so um, 
you know, Donald Glover, uh, Childish Gambino, has kind of been in the news for the last week because of the uh, new song and video, This Is America, which is pretty stunning. But, uh, but so I saw an interview that he did with Jimmy Kimmel, and Kimmel asked him, what is the first album that you ever bought, and what album have you listened to more than any other album? And I had to think long and hard about this, and I was curious about, you, about your answer for this. Oh, the first album I ever bought was Heart Bad Animals. That was a long, long time ago. But the one I've listened to more than anyone, and this is any time that there's like a new version of, like, so you get tapes, CDs, you know, go into streaming and stuff. The first album I always get is the first Beastie Boys album, License to Ill. That's, that's, my, that's my favorite all-time favorite album. So that's the, that's the one I always throw down on whenever there's a change in, uh, you know, medium for music. What's your song? Nice. Oh uh, well, no sleep till Brooklyn. That would be my walk-up song if I was a if I was a player. It's not bad. I like Paul Revere a lot too. Yeah, I have a my ten-year-old wears Beastie Boys socks all the time to school, and that's his. That's his. Uh, he, he's a Paul Revere guy. That is really awesome. I've, I've always loved "So What You Want." I remember yep. the uh, the video for that in you know nineteen ninety nineteen ninety one somewhere around there. That's a Spike Jones video, if I, if I remember correctly. I, I think you're right. That and and sabotage, of course, was was one of the legendary videos from the uh, from the MTV era when it was still around. Yep. All right, man. So uh, this is this is the final question, and we had gone back and forth on whether or not Boondock Saints was a good movie for, for several <laughs> several weeks. It was, uh, and I won. I, yeah, I was unfortunately in the minority because I I think Boondock Saints is. Um, we'll just say it falls short of being cinematic achievement. But uh, my question for you is, uh, aside from the visual effects, is Avatar a good movie? I really liked Boondock Saints, by the way. I own it. Oh, yes! I haven't watched it in, in probably <laughs> 10 years, but when it first was out, man, I remember renting it and watching it like over and over again. And you know and you said the, the tagline. The second one was horrendous, but the first one first one was, was, was phenomenal. But um, You know, I watched Avatar and IMAX and all that, I mean, when when you watch it now, it's like what they're making more of these, and they Disney did what at the theme park? And it's not a good movie. It's not. <laughs> Sam Worthington. It, it, it. I mean, wasn't that guy supposed to be the next big thing? And I don't know if it's because he's been locked up by James Cameron to make all these movies, but he hasn't done. I mean, we did that that um, Wrath of the Titans movie. When's he the did, last time he you did saw that. Sam Worthington? He did Terminator I mean, Salvation. In a milk carton. <laughs> he's be, all he's been in his busts if you think about it i mean avatar made a bunch of money but really it wasn't it was just fern gully with a live action and some some blue yep. dragon people but every other movie i i remember when sam worthington was supposed to be the next big thing uh and then terminator salvation happened and then the two titans movies happened and i haven't seen him since well maybe he's hiding in that that addition to animal kingdom at disney maybe they maybe they've made him part of the attraction then maybe that's what we're going to find out. You know, people swear by their franchises anymore. And if what I've read is correct, they're making all the way through Avatar 5. What? So, I mean, yeah. I mean, they apparently, after the success of the first one, they went back and they wrote out the script for four new Avatar movies. So the, <laughs> the budget is going to wind up being somewhere in the billion-dollar range. But. It's going to be higher than the GDP of most countries. Yeah. I mean, James Cameron is his own sovereign nation. So... <laughs> You know, you can apply for citizenship <laughs> on his website, I think. But uh, but so concludes another segment of the, the non-sequitur segment of the show. So thank you for playing along, Corey. You passed the flying colors. Well, thank you. 
And the fact that you like Boondock Saints is just another point <laughs> that Doc needs to re-up his movie takes because obviously his are deficient. Five to one to one, man. I, I am so, so much in the minority. <laughs> and Go that, watch it again. Maybe, maybe you'll change your tune. I, I will. I, I think I'm, I'm just taking it too seriously. Right. Just watch it for what it is. An awesome shoot 'em up with an awesome tagline that you will continue to say for like two weeks after you've watched the movie. But hey, yeah, man, it, look. it makes you want to be Catholic. If you're not Catholic, it makes, it makes you <laughs> or Irish at least. And I don't even mind movies that are bad. Like I said before, man, I grew up watching Howard the Duck. You want to talk about a movie that is not a cinematic achievement? Then we can go on that one all day long. But I don't know. <laughs> Howard the Duck knows how bad it is. The hot tub time machine knows how bad it is. So, but uh, but yeah, I'll, I will go back and watch it, and then I will I will prepare a uh, I will prepare a speech about whether I was wrong or not. You don't even need to. You were wrong. But uh, glad on that on that final note, we could finally admit once and for all that my movie takes are better than Doc's. Every major guest of any importance we've had has agreed with me, um, as per usual. So. With all that said, we do have to wrap up here for a second. Uh, Corey, once again, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I apologize for the fact that my phone sounds like crap for some reason today. Thank you for being a trooper and sticking through it. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely, guys. I appreciate it. And for all of you out there who aren't already following, make sure you're following the the, chat, the Chopcast podcast and following Corey on Twitter. Corey, why don't you let everybody know where they can find you? Yeah, at Corey J. McCartney on Twitter, and you can always find our all of our stuff at Fox Sports Braves on Twitter, FoxSportsSouth.com, all that. Any, just type in the word Fox Sports South and whatever it sends you to, you'll probably find something I did there. So that's probably the best route. Kind of sounded like a brag there for a second, but I'll let you have it for being such <laughs> well, a good guest. Saying, it's probably the easiest way, to, the easiest way to find it. No, no, it's okay. Sometimes sometimes you've earned the the ability to brag a little bit, and you agreed with me, so, so we're good there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. But Doc, thank you for joining me, buddy. It's it is always the highlight of my week. I always enjoy this. Likewise, and uh, we made it through 12 episodes. Yeah, and nobody's unsubscribed from us yet. Had a, had a disagreement, so um, <laughs> so yeah, man. Always uh, always a pleasure, uh, Corey McCartney. You were a good man. Thanks again for uh, for coming on the show, and uh, hopefully Thanks, we can yeah, hopefully we can do this again sometime. If, Absolutely. If the Braves are still in first by the All Star break, we'll make sure to have you on again next time. We'll ask you some very um, I don't want to say intimate questions. We'll, we'll ask you some very difficult wow. questions regarding your partner, <laughs> your Chopcast partner, and uh, we'll I, try. Al to... Green, bubble bath, and <laughs> uh, oh god, no, I'm sorry, sorry. Rose scent, or lavender scented candles. Those those might all be included uh, next time we have you on. Thank you for listening. We will catch you guys again next week right here on the Platinum Sombrero. Thanks, bye.